Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast from our week off for the 4th of July. I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of strategic decision-making because I realize a couple of the different concepts that I've highlighted recently appear to be in conflict with each other. And to some extent, they are, and that's okay, but I wanted to kind of tease it out and talk to you about that. So how do you decide what to do? How do you make strategic decisions? One of the concepts that I highlighted was called the strategic point doctrine. And I mentioned this because it was used by Jim Wilson when he decided to go out and start a Christian bookstore in the Pullman, Washington, Moscow, Idaho area. And that is the genesis of how he ended up founding the community that now we associate with Doug Wilson. It has probably a couple thousand people, all the businesses, everything that you know uh, about that, which is, is, is out there. And Jim Wilson had been in the Navy, and he learned about this doctrine called the strategic point in the Navy. And the strategic point is the intersection uh, or maximization of things that are both feasible and important. So you could think of it as a, a two-by-two matrix created by axes of feasibility and importance. And you want to maximize on both of those, basically. Of course, there's something of a trade-off there. So he said, I want to start a Christian bookstore. I want to reach a town for Christ. I want to transform a town with the power of the gospel. So which town do I pick? And so as you could think about, for example, picking New York City probably the most important strategic location in the country, but not really feasible for one guy coming out of the Navy with no real money to think about making a big impact in New York. So New York is high on importance, but low on feasibility. Or you could maybe think about small town in southern Indiana, like where I'm from. Maybe very feasible to go in there and make a huge impact because it's small, but it's not strategically important. And, you know, I would argue these are towns that are also well-served. Doesn't necessarily mean that if you felt a call to that area, you shouldn't go there. Or if you have some kind of connection to it, as I do, I might want to go back and do something in my hometown. Nevertheless, from a strategic importance perspective, not all places are created equal. And so what are the places that are important at some level strategically, but also feasible to make an impact in? And he came up with the idea of college towns. Let's go to a college town because college towns, uh, basically, they are important because they're training the next generation of leaders. And they're also cultural production centers. They're feasible because of their size. They're not huge. Uh, and, you know, there's always turnover, so the permanent population necessarily isn't that high, etc. So he mapped out college towns across America and made a decision to head out to the Pacific or Northwest, sight unseen, because he uh, wanted to uh, wanted to make a difference there. And he just picked it because he used this doctrine, this strategic point. And, you know, why that one? I don't know all the details, but you had two colleges, essentially, for the price of one. You had the University of Idaho in Moscow, and you had Washington State University in Pullman. They were eight miles apart. Two small towns, two colleges. Um, you know, 
neither one extremely elite or super rich or something that would make it unusually hard. As I've said, I, I think he actually went to Pullman originally, but the choice of Moscow was inspired because it's a state flagship university, but relatively small in size, not especially prestigious, not so rich, and ergo, they were able to come in and not only make a, you know, make a big impact on the town, but they were able to acquire real estate on the main street of the town uh, and to do things there that it would not be possible to do in, say, a Big Ten college town because these schools are much richer, more prestigious, much larger, etc. So kind of inspired, and he went out there. And when you think about a matrix like this, this is what I call essentially a pragmatic type of matrix. And you can create decision matrices like this by plotting any two sort of independent variables that you want to compare or sort of maximize uh, against. So for example, we could create a, a plot of growth versus profit margins or something like that, because you might view that there's some sort of a trade-off between you know how fast you're growing and profit margin in a business. And when you do that, you essentially divide into four quadrants. And each quadrant is high this, low that, high this, high this, low this, you know, low that. And so, um, you, know, you know, that's what some of the most famous decision tools in the consulting world are. There are these two-by-two two matrices. The Boston Consulting Group matrix is one of the most famous. And I think it, it has things like your stars are sort of high growth, you know, generating a lot of cash. And you get your cash cows, which are profitable but aren't growing. Your dogs. I think that's the Boston Consulting Group. There's so many of these things I, I can't remember what they all are. But you should look it up. It's one of the most famous ones. But if you have two variables that seem to have some sort of a trade-off or independence to them, you can plot it. It'll create a four-quadrant diagram. You could put some things on there, and it'll help you decide what to do uh, there. And so uh, what I basically said, you know, one of the things I did in a previous uh, issue of my newsletter, and I'm actually probably going to dig this out in this month's edition, is I put together a two-by-two -two matrix that talked about strategies for responding to institutional decline. Uh, on sort of, you know, the top half, I said it was stay and fight. The bottom half was basically depart, right? So do you, do you stay and try to reform or do you depart and try to do something new? And then the other axis I said is essentially, are you kind of more defensive in nature or more offensive in nature? And then that, you know, divided things into four different strategic types uh, that you should sort of map, and then I map various movements to them. And again, everything doesn't necessarily map perfectly flawlessly to this, but it's ways to think about the problem. And if you think about a matrix like feasibility and importance, and you pick something that's feasible and important, then you're essentially making a, a sort of a pragmatic decision. You're making a decision to pick on something that you think is probably going to end up being doable. And so where's the conflict with what else I've told you? I've also talked about the importance of having a multi-generational perspective of thinking about building a cathedral that neither you nor your children will actually see completed or the proverbial planting the tree under whose shade you will never uh, sit. And a lot of times we can think about things that are not feasible in any sort of short term Maybe they're so infeasible, we don't even know how to do them, yet the importance is such that we want to take them on anyway. We want to be audacious in how we think about them. So you could think of essentially the, the audacity versus pragmatism 
way to go about things. And I actually argue that Jim Wilson's choice was not entirely pragmatic. It was extraordinarily audacious for one guy with a van full of books to think he could go make a difference. And it would certainly take multiple generations to realize his vision. So he had a, a perspective uh, that extended beyond his own life. In fact, I think he just passed away uh, not that long ago. I was very privileged to get to meet him prior to um, prior to uh, his passing. A great, delightful man, and he had a perspective that went went beyond. But I think we could, we could think about this distinction between trying to pick something that's a little pragmatic and something that's more audacious. Uh, and I've uh, mentioned this before as well. You know, a friend of mine, Dwight Gibson, I did a podcast with him. He's got this line that pragmatism killed Michigan. And he talks about, you know, in, in the Midwest, uh, people tend to, to, to say, what can I do with the tools and the resources that I have kind of in front of me? What can I do with my two hands to solve this problem? And if the answer is not contained within our ability to do it as we see it, then we, it tends, we tend to be completely blind to it. Whereas if you go out to Silicon Valley, we see that they have this idea of going you know, from zero to one. We're going to cr create something. We're going to attempt to do something. We're not sure how we're going to do it yet, uh, but we're just going to go do it. And Dwight, uh, you know, Lincoln likens this to what he calls the exploration mindset. And a lot of his business, his consulting business, if you want to call it that, is focused on rediscovering the techniques of exploration and applying them to the problems today. Not just saying, how do we plan and execute some sort of an adjacent extension to what we already do, something that we can sort of plot out, like, well, you know, we're going to build a house or something. We can add up how much lumber we need, how much concrete. Why? So we can do all that. But when you do something like Elon Musk, we're going to go to Mars. We're going to colonize Mars. How in the world are you going to colonize Mars? Well, we don't know. He still doesn't know. But one of the things that having a crazy goal like that is, is it really focuses your efforts. Sort of like Kennedy's, well, we choose to go to the moon. How are we going to get to the moon? I have no idea how we're going to get to the moon. But we're going to solve the problems it takes to get to the moon. And so one of the things that Musk discovered is that, hey, the let's start let's start with some of the hardest problems the hardest problems how to get there how are we going to get there how are we going to get to mars cheaply well i guess we need a rocket so i'm going to start spacex we're going to focus on cheap reusable rockets this new rocket that he's creating the starship with super heavy booster is designed i think primarily to get to mars i mean that's the that's the use case for this rocket now it may end up revolutionizing uh space in the vicinity of our own planet but ultimately, right, the idea is I'm, I'm going to Mars and, and we're working on getting getting to Mars. And I think things like Starlink Internet, which is satellite Internet service that encircles the globe, uh, is a kind of a game changer. I think he just sort of did that to make money to fuel his Mars ambitions. Like, I got to make some money. How am I going to make money? Satellite Internet. I got a better idea for satellite Internet. So. Uh, very interesting, very interesting there. So you can think about doing something that is hyper audacious, hyper strategic, not very feasible or seemingly not very feasible. And we're going to create a startup to do that. And we're going to use a lot of hype and all these things to get us going. And I do think that there are some tensions in decision making. And this is where, you know, I think uh, you look at a book like Ecclesiastes in the Bible, you know, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. 
there are times for applying different tools and different criteria to different problems. We're not always in the same situation. We're not always looking, you know, at the same kind of problems with the same kinds of, of consequences. And some of us also, by the very nature of our personalities, incline ourselves to one form of decision-making over another. And we need people that have diversities of perspectives, diversities of personalities, uh, you know, diversities of decision-making in what they take on in order to, you know, really cover all our bases and make pros you know, progress as a species, right, as a country, uh, et cetera. And so I, I think this, this idea of the strategic point is a very useful way to think about problems. It's a way you could think about strategic decision-making. And it's also a way, you know, also just the very concept of plotting two axes and creating a two-by-two two matrix to let you weigh different trade-offs and like what quadrant do you want to be in, but also this idea of kind of the audacious vision that goes beyond simple, uh, simple decision-making like that. Maybe we don't want to pick something that seems feasible. Maybe we have the, the itch for something that is beyond impossible. I want to do something that's insanely great. Uh, as Steve Jobs might might have said, I want to do something that's going from zero to one. I want to do something no one's ever done. For some people, pragmatic considerations actually bore them. It doesn't make them right. So there are different tools that we can use when we have to have different tools in our toolbox. And if we're over, we can become over reliant on one tool, then we're going to limit ourselves by the nature of that tool. And so I think for myself, because I'm from the Midwest. And one of the patterns of thought that I tend to fall into is the pragmatic pattern of the Midwesterner. And maybe this, some of which comes from my technology background and, you know, information technology is a lot of risk management. And so we're always spending a lot of time thinking about risk management. What happens if a tornado hits our data center? What happens about this? So I'm very, very good at coming up with all the ways things could go wrong. <laughs> And when you do that, you tend to, you know, tend to design solutions to mitigate this risk and that, and you end up being very cautious. And so I think as a result, I have probably been under audacious and my ambition levels have probably been too low in certain cases. And uh, that, I think, is one of the things that, that has ended up plaguing the Midwest, plaguing even cities like Chicago, for example. It's kind of low ambition thinking, not take over the world type thinking. Uh, that you see in a New York City or out in the Bay Area. So no surprise that this idea of the strategic point is something that resonates with me uh, because I, you know, I tend to think a little bit more pragmatically, uh, if, if you will. And again, I would say Jim Wilson himself was being audacious. He just used this to help point his audacity in a particular direction. And you could even think about, you know, a big goal that you're taking and think, what's the next step uh, I, t I, I take in my goal? You, you could use this to kind of take the first a model. What's the first step I take towards a more bigger audacious uh, vision? And so you don't have to get there, uh, you know, all, all in one uh, uh, boat. The other thing I've just uh, point out uh, is that we can very easily also artificially limit ourselves with constraints that we don't need to put on to our decision-making. And uh, you, this is one, again, it's not super related to the other things, but I'm kind of giving you some 
ways to think about problems today, ways to think about strategic decisions. And this one really occurred to me with the news that the University of Southern California and UCLA are joining the Big Ten Conference. So I know I have a lot of international uh, listeners here. So in the United States, collegiate athletics are very big, and colleges and universities are generally organized into conferences historically with, you know, 10 to 12 teams, 8 to 12 teams. They play each other. There's a conference championship. They tend to be geographically focused and also, you know, similar types of schools. And there's been a sort of realignment of these uh, conferences over time. And it's come about that now we see that there are basically going to be two big winners, the SEC or uh, Southeastern Conference and the Big Ten, which is a Midwest uh, uh, conference uh, where my alma mater, Indiana University, is. And again, these were typically conferences that had you know a limited number of teams and were geographically concentrated. Uh, and so you could say the Big Ten was a Midwest conference. But what they did is they decided, hey, you know what? There's no law that restricts us to the center of the country. We can go grab at bigger TV markets That'll improve our position in terms of negotiating rights. And oh, by the way, we're going to create our own cable network, the Big Ten Network. And the more markets we're in, the more people who are going to carry it, the more money we're going to make. So they went to the East Coast and took in two schools, you know, Rutgers in New Jersey and the University of Maryland. So they're clipping the New York City media market, which is you know, the biggest in the country, uh, a little bit of the Philadelphia media market, and also the, the Metro Washington, D.C. media market. And then I think something that really shocked and stunned people, they went out and grabbed two schools from Los Angeles. So this is now a conference with something like 16 teams that will span coast to coast. And probably in the old ways of thinking about conferences, it'd be like, oh, you can't do that. You can't have members of an athletic conference on two sides of the country. I mean, how will they travel? How will they do this? They do the whole Aaron Wren thing. They start raising all these objections. You know, you know, we couldn't do this. What about travel? What about time zones? What about this? What about that? Well, apparently, what about it? The Big Ten said, we're not going to allow ourselves to be limited by artificial thinking that says we can only do business in the area where we've traditionally done business. So they grabbed the key East Coast markets. Now they've grabbed the most important West Coast market and have essentially completely upended the entire conference uh, system in America. And now everybody can see, well, it's going to be the Big Ten and the SEC. And so everybody else is sort of scrambling to figure out how to get into those conferences. And the Big Ten, right, they basically could just have their pick of any university that's not in the uh, in, not in the SEC already. Basically, if you're not an SEC school or not already a Big Ten school, you went into one of those two conferences. And it doesn't look like it's super feasible that there could be another conference that really is going to rival them in terms of revenue. Uh, there might be some other, you know, another one arise. It could be competitive at some level, but it's not going to be the same just because of the markets and the prestige of the schools and the size of the fan bases, et cetera. So could easily have taken this mentality that, oh, well, we couldn't possibly go to New York. We couldn't possibly go to D.C. We couldn't possibly go to Los Angeles. Well, they did it. And this is one of the rare cases in America where the people from flyover country actually beat the people on the coast, right? 
the Chicago-based Big Ten gobbled up New York and Los Angeles. New York and, and Los Angeles didn't gobble them up because they. this was a rare case of sort of heartland, audacious, ambitious thinking. So all this idea you'll hear on any self-improvement blog about limiting beliefs, this stuff often really does have really practical, tangible consequences because there's all sorts of actions we could be taking that we actually don't take not because we're not capable of doing it, but simply because we've arbitrarily said, well, you know, I, I guess if I'm here in Indiana, I can't do X, Y, and Z. Who said that? There's no rule about that. You know, there's, there's no rule that says, you know, you can't, do, you can't do anything. And that's not to say there's no limits on us. Of course, there are limits on us. But it's very important, uh, very important for us to not uh, let ourselves uh, become strategically undermined and ultimately defeated as a result of artificially limiting our, our thinking too. So that's, that's another strategic consideration. I, I, I love athletic conference re realignment. It's got your game theory. It's got a lot of things going on. Uh, I don't even like college sports, to be honest. I don't really watch sports of any time today. But this stuff really fascinates me. And again, it's, it's one where sort of the underdogs won, right, in, in a sense, and that the SEC and the Big Ten, these flyover conferences, uh, are now going to be dominant. And there's probably some uh, lessons to be learned for other aspects of our lives or other aspects of the economies in these states. Uh, so I'll leave it with that. But again, those are, those are some tools and perspectives and things to think about when it comes to uh, perspective decision-making. I say somebody, uh, see somebody left me a comment. Hello from Canada. Good stuff there. Thanks a lot. I appreciate all of you who, who tuned in live, and I will talk to you again next week.